Hi, I'm Dylan O'Keefe. You're listening to the Checkered Flag Chat, Bathurst 12-hour preview. The lead is clear. This is the fight for second, third and fourth. 16 minutes left in a 12-hour motor race. Here goes Matt Campbell. Had to commit. Got him. Campbell second. Porsche rejoice. The Aussie fans rejoice. Now he goes Aston Martin hunting. They're talking about Raphael Marcello. Well, it's that time of the year again when we all get set for Australia's international endurance race, the 2020 edition of the Liquamoli Bathurst 12 Hour is just a few days away. And as has become tradition over the last few years, it's myself, Lockie Mansell, and Dave Stilwell on a special Checkered Flag chat podcast to preview all of the action for what has rapidly evolved into one of the biggest sports car endurance races, obviously the biggest in Australia, but uh, also now one of the biggest in the world as part of the Intercontinental GT Challenge. And Dave, as I say g'day to you, you would have to say, we say it every year, but I don't think there's any doubt the field for this year's Bathurst 12-hour, the deepest and most competitive that we've ever seen. It's a field that emphasises quality over quantity, as we've seen, and particularly since it's become, I guess, the one of the cornerstones of the Intercontinental GT Challenge put together by the Stefan Rattel organisation. This is the event that the factories behind the GT3 customer racing organisations want to win. And we see that as we look through the entry list. There's a lot of foreign team names, but when you actually dig a little deeper, you know, there's a lot of Audi money behind that squad. There's a lot of Mercedes money behind that squad. There's a lot of BMW support behind that squad. Remember, GT3... The uh, uh, Gran Turismo category GT3 is meant to be about customer racing. Well, I think a lot of the customers that are racing in this field uh, this weekend in the 2020 edition of the race have got some very good customer deals from the manufacturers to go to this race. And importantly, we're also seeing some cars that are making their first appearances, not just at the 12-hour, but in Australian motorsports. So you've got the new turbocharged V8 version of the Aston Martin Vantage, which replaces the V12 model that we've seen in service for the last few years. We raise a drink to you, oh mighty V12. All lovely six litres of Aston Martin brilliance. We will miss you. Long live... uh, The V12 is dead. Long live the V12. What are you going to miss most about the V12 for me? Definitely the sound of the engine. The noise. Loud noises. And also the grunt up up and down the mountain as well. Well, that was particularly the thing that we saw, I think, in our preview podcast week. We were riding the car off. You know, it was the swan song for the car, one of the oldest cars in the field. 
Um, Aston Martin had focused on a lot of updates on reliability. Um, and then lo and behold, the car's quick in practice. Jake Dennis, the rookie, massively impressive, um, goes and sticks the thing on provisional pole and then wins the top 10 shootout. Uh, and then unfortunately, they discovered that the settings that they had in the rev limiter and the engine management computer wasn't in compliance with the BOP specification for the race. So they actually got excluded and from uh, from the top 10 shootout. That didn't stop them though. At the end of the at the last 25 minutes of the race, when the lights on the AMG safety car went out, it was the R Motorsport number 62 Aston right at the front, ready to go. Um, but uh, he got chased down in the end by Matt Campbell. But we had we had not factored that car into the race competitively, and I was very I was very very much uh, happy to be proven wrong um, at the end of the 12 hours at, uh, around Mount Panorama last year. What it shows, though, and one of the contentious issues and one of the big conversation points at the Bathurst 12-hour is always BOP, balance of performance, but the fact that a car that had been in service for several seasons was still able to be competitive against the newer machinery like the Aston Martin was last year, you would have to say that's a pretty robust validation of the effectiveness of the balance of performance formula. Well, the other thing to go across from that is that the car that won the race the Earl Bamber Motorsport Porsche that Matt Campbell put on some stunning overtakes in the last half hour of the race to win, that car was also in its swan song. That was the the sign-off race for the first-generation 991 series uh, Porsche 911 GT3R. Of course, they've returned this year along with some other Porsche competitors in the 991 Series 2 car, which, of course, as we found out, the Bathurst 12-hour, because it occurs so early in the calendar year, the race is often... Uh, conducted before the next season's worth of both homologations of vehicles. That's the sign-off from the FIA that this car is eligible to race in GT3. Not only that, but it misses out on the important BOP testing where the FIA and the SRO figure out what sort of ride heights, uh, air intake restrictors, uh, minimum racing weights that the cars have to run in order to balance them out. That's a little bit different this year because the the Evo kit on the Mercedes-AMG GT3 was homologated towards the end of last year. It's been BOP'd. It's ready to go, so we get the uh, brand new uh, front and rear end on the Mercedes AMG GT3. Of course, they really want to win this uh, this race again. Of course, it's been a while since the SLS was victorious here. It's good, isn't it? That the Bathurst 12-hour from a BOP and homologation perspective is now recognised as the first event of this season rather than when it was previously sort of considered to be the last event of the previous season, which meant that we didn't get to see the latest machinery because it hadn't been homologated yet. And remember last year when the Audi teams rocked up at the track with the Evo upgrades, they had to take those panels off and put the old panels back on because the Evo package hadn't been homologated yet. We're not going to have those sorts of problems this season, thankfully. Well, the other thing is is that pretty much everyone in the field is running either the cars that they ran in the last three or four years or they're running a car that received an Evo package, which is an additional homologation. So it's where you do things like you put a new front bumper, a new rear bumper, new side skirts. You often trim the aerodynamic performance. You might do things like you change uh, brake caliper specifications to improve the endurance of the car to allow you to fit bigger brake pads. Um, There can often be engine, mostly often reliability updates, but to try to make the car uh, easier to drive for both the professionals and the amateurs to kind of shrink that performance gap down between the two types of drivers. Um, but what we saw is that there was a huge number of GT3 manufacturers that at the start of the 2019 season debuted Evo packages, which, of course, we didn't get to run in Australia. 
Lamborghini Huracan, Audi R8, uh, the Honda NSX GT3, which of course debuts in the race and in Australian competition here in 2020. That was running an Evo package at the start of last year. Um, and then of course the uh, Ferrari 488 Evo, um, the, I think the BMW M6 could run its Evo last year, but the year before it wasn't able to run in Evo specifications. So, um, again, the Mercedes AMG GT does have its new homologation, uh, in for its update package that I think went through in September, October last year. So that was uh, something they really focused on to get published out the door, BOP, ready to go so they could be competitive in this race, which of course, uh, Unlike in, uh, in in some other championships that run in a in a summer season or a, a, a financial year, the Intercontinental GT Challenge does run through the calendar year, and the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour does mark the start of a campaign in the five uh, five round series or the five round challenge, I should say, uh, for GT3 cars across five different continents. So it's important for the manufacturers to want their cars to be ready to fight in the same specification with the best fighting chance through that now very highly regarded challenge. With the BOP, when manufacturers make improvements with Evo packages and so on, we need to emphasise the point that because the whole balance of performance formula is designed to make sure that the cars are competing on a level playing field and no one car has an advantage over the others, the manufacturers are not really chasing any sort of performance improvements, but what they're always looking at are ways to make the cars easier to drive, particularly for their target audience, which in GT3 racing is predominantly what we would describe as gentlemen drivers. People, Non-professionals. Yeah, people yeah. who have had, in most cases, a lot of success off the racetrack and racing as their recreation rather than their professional vocation, as it were. Absolutely. And I think particularly BOP focuses on trying to get uh, cars at their you know fastest 10 lap times of an event to get that, you know, they take the top 10, 15 lap times or so for each car, average out the lap times. They want to get the gap between cars to be, again, consider that in the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour, we're balancing 11 different brands. There are some other championships that have had some very big parity discussions in the last 12 to 18 months where they've been balancing three brands or for the 2020 season, they're only balancing two different types of car. And those cars have got the same roll cage structure, the same weight distribution underneath them. Every single car in the GT3 field is effectively different underneath. The only cars that are even close to being the same are the Audi R8 and the Lamborghini Huracan because... They're built off the same platform that comes from the uh, Volkswagen Audi group, and they share a 5.2-litre V10, and there's some assistance from Dallara in building the cars. And that's basically it. You look at the interior of the cars, they're different. You look at the exterior of the cars, they're very different. The fact that they can get the balance of the cars so close, particularly at different kinds of circuits, one of the things we should make clear about BOP, it's not a fixed set-in-stone thing for the whole year for every single track. There's like a low speed, high downforce specification. There's a medium speed, medium downforce specification and a high speed, low downforce. There's multiple different configurations that the SRO and the FIA work together to produce a BOP. One of the other things is that the event organizers, supercars, are also working hand in hand with SRO, the administrators for GT3 Worldwide. Stefan Rattel was the instigator of the concept now fully 15 years ago, Lachlan. Not only that, they reserve the right to make BOP adjustments up until the start of the race if it becomes clear that 
because of the unique nature of the Mount Panorama circuit layout, it may be necessary to go, hmm, while the BOP that we thought was going to work for you really well and works well at other circuits, say at Spa-Francorchamps or Monza or Barcelona, someone goes, you might be a little bit too quick in the straight line and you might not be losing out enough across the top of the mountain. So we might just make a little trim to your sonic air restrictor or we might take away an 100 or 200 RPM. We might give you 20 kilos of extra weight. We might add 5 mil to your ride height. All of these tools are available to the organisers right up until the start of the race to make sure that we get the most competitive sports car race because that's what all the manufacturers want. The whole reason this is in place is that once you homologate a car, that's it. You don't touch it. You don't come up with new shocks, new springs, new engine, new exhaust. In the old days of GT racing, you had to build a car to a set of rules and then you had to bring out the update this weekend and then next weekend and then the weekend after that and then it just became this arms race. Whereas GT3 was much more about, no, no, that's the car. And we'll balance it so that your customer can buy the car, make a fairly sizable one-off investment, and they know that that car will remain its value or retain its value without you having to spend millions upon millions of dollars developing it yourself. You buy the car, the manufacturer sells you the spare parts you need based on the runtime that you run, and then after two or three years, once the manufacturer has enough data, both from its own running and its valued customer teams, to go okay, when we built the car, it was maybe a little bit you know, too much rear aerodynamic focus. So we've worked on making the rear as effective as possible, but maybe reduce the downforce level slightly and improve the front aerodynamic grip. That necessitates a re-homologation or an Evo package for the car. And that becomes, again, you don't have to buy that. You can see when you look at the FIA's BOP sheets, there's often two different specifications for the one car. There'll be an Audi R8 LMS of the 2015 or 2016 variety, and there'll be the Audi R8 LMS Evo specification from 2019. And because those cars are effectively the same underneath, but are built with two different sets of bodywork or two different sets of brakes or two different sets of engines, they will have different BOPs. One might get a slightly larger sonic air intake restrictor. One might run at a different weight. One might run at a different ride height. They're treated as different cars, and that means that we have seen in the past some competitors have actually chosen an earlier specification of a particular model. Think of the Lamborghini Gallardo that was entered uh, several years ago where they picked an earlier specification because they found that from their testing, which they'd done at Bathurst, they found that the car was, the later model car was potentially quicker overlap, but as a race car, it wasn't going to have the speed up and down the hill, which we know at Bathurst is critical to getting through the field. And on that basis, they chose an earlier model specification, an earlier homologated version. They, of course, have to run the BOP for that car, but that was the decision they made. And as we see even this year, the Lamborghini teams, the Triple F, uh, the factory-supported cars from overseas, are running in the 2019 uh, Evo specification, whereas the locally-supported uh, Trofeo Motorsport team is running their car in its 2016 through 18 specification. Um, because they've determined that's how they feel they'll be as most competitive this year. So let's just touch on this a bit more and break it down for everybody who's going to be watching either on television at home on Channel 7 or actually trackside at the event watching it live because we need to translate what all of this balance of performance discussion means in terms of what's going to happen on the racetrack on race day. What we've seen in the past 
is that because the cars are balanced based on lap time, they will still have different strengths and weaknesses in different parts of the circuit. So what we've seen in previous years is that cars like the Mercedes and the Aston Martins have been very quick up and down the mountain, Bentley as well. Other cars like the Ferraris and in particular the Audi R8s haven't quite had the straight line performance, but they've been very quick over the top. In qualifying, that's fine because your lap time is going to be just as quick as any other car. But in race conditions, being quick over the top doesn't really help you because you can't pass people over the top. So I think back to 2016 and Laurent Vantor, who at that stage was one of the Audi factory drivers, was quite vocal about the car's lack of straight line performance. And that was because in the race, he kept getting in situations where he would catch up to cars, he would get held up by them over the top of the mountain, but then they would pull away from him in a straight line so in race trim a car that is quick up and down the mountain is a far more raceable proposition than a car that makes all of its speed over the top well that also plays into where you factor into the field as well and with due due deference to mr uh, van thor um, the only person or the only organization that he would have to blame for the um, performance of his car based on that bop is unfortunately audi sport because the manufacturer of the car makes a decision about what level of aerodynamic downforce that they want to run, what level of engine performance they want to run. We've seen in GT3, we've had cars with massive engines and very small aerodynamic um, aerodynamic performance. Things like the Ryta Camaro, which ran an almost 8-litre V8 engine. Hugely fast, a great noise. If you think the Bentleys and the Mercedes sound good coming past, the, having a Camaro go come past you at warp speed is fantastic but because the car had very little aerodynamic performance its main strength was in straight line the difference is is that over a stint length you know over a the use of a set of tires the camaro without enough downforce would chew its way through tires far quicker than its competitors and again bop can only balance the outright performance of the car what the teams are looking for, and particularly the manufacturers with their Evo packages, they're looking to extend that performance and maintain it at a very high level for as long as possible. It's all well and good to say the cars are within half a second of each other over a 6.2 kilometre circuit at their outright best pace when they're on good tyres with good fuel and good drivers behind the wheel. But what about when you know you do your second, you're putting on your second fuel load and you're staying on the same set of tyres? And your car doesn't have a huge amount of aerodynamic downforce, so you've been relying more on the mechanical grip. You might only have 30 or 40% of the valid tyre life remaining, whereas one of your competitors, who's a bit quicker through the corners and not as quick in a straight line, who's got much more efficient aerodynamic profile and generating a lot more downforce, when they bolt that second load of fuel in and they don't have to put tyres on, they've got 50-60% usable tyre wear left. It's that second stint where they really start to come to the fore. But as we've seen at Bathurst, unless you can actually find a way past them where you've got the advantage, it's all for nothing anyway. Interesting that you make that point because often we talk about the fact that cars will have different strengths and weaknesses in different parts of the track. But in a long-distance endurance race, you often find as well that 
cars and driver combinations will have different strengths and weaknesses at different parts of the race. So there'll be some cars that'll be very quick early on. We've seen it at the Bathurst 12-hour, people sprinting away in the first stint where the sun hasn't come up yet and where the conditions are still quite cool. But then as the temperature of the day has increased, the cars come back to the field. And you think back, I know exactly the example that you guys have given. I think it's Chaz Mostert from 2018. I was going to say, look at any turbocharged car. So with the BOP restrictions, the cars are limited to um, either a normally aspirated car has a sonic intake restrictor, which restricts the airflow through the engine. It's trying to, it's like trying to breathe through a straw. Uh, whereas the turbocharged cars, rather than using a sonic restrictor, which is a fairly um, vigorous way of uh, accru- settling performance differences between cars, they run what's called a boost monitor where they're limited to a certain number of uh, percentage of atmospheric increases um, versus ambient pressure. One of the things that you get away with is that um, if the air is denser when it's colder, if we remember, um, cold, dense air is what makes engines run really, really efficiently. So first thing in the morning, when the race kicks off at quarter to six in the darkness, all the turbocharged cars have got a little bit extra up their sleeves. Because the air is cold and dense, for however many atmospheres of pressure that they're allowed, they've actually got more volume of air, more oxygen particles to mix with fuel available to them. So they get a little bit more of a performance kick early in the morning. We've seen McLaren sprint away. The race lap record set by Shane Van Gisbergen was set in the very early hours of the morning aboard a twin turbocharged V8 powered McLaren. And then of course the sun starts to heat up, the air density comes down, the humidity level sometimes starts to rise as well. And as we see with the long range forecast, we are going to have ambient temperatures in the 30s um, across all three days of the event, um, particularly Friday and Saturday. So the good thing that is, is it bodes well for the teams to set the cars up for the atmospheric conditions. But again, later in the race, particularly um, customers who maybe... uh, don't decide to put a second set of brakes in the car for the second stint of the race. As we saw with the Earl Bamber Motorsport crew, they made sure that for the last stint of the race, they had the freshest tyres of basically anyone in the lead lap. They'd already replaced brake pads and I think possibly even brake discs later in the race. So they had they had given Matt Campbell as good a weapon as they could give him to be successful in the last part of that race. Contrast that with our Motorsport who'd done a very good job with the Aston, but that thing, I reckon, was almost down to the backing plates on the front brake pads, and the tyres were, and particularly uh, Raffaello uh, uh, Marciello's AMG, Matt Campbell just sent the thing down the inside and disappeared away from him because had tyres that were at least one stint better, 32, 33 laps better. Um, And as we saw, just as a, a case in point, folks, Lachlan and I watched the last 25 minutes of the 2019 edition of the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour before recording this show for you. And even then, I just, I look at it and go, that was the strategic play, making sure, you know, it's the stuff we talk about Bathurst's other long distance endurance race that happens in October. Lachlan, you've got a phrase, you buy yourself a ticket to the end of the race. What, it's not my phrase, it's actually Neil Crompton's phrase, credit it where it's due. Um, but it's one you do like putting out there. Yes, you have to buy yourself a ticket, but you want to buy yourself a golden ticket to the end of the race, Lachlan. You want to have the car straight. You don't want to have panels hanging off it. You don't want to have the thing being held together with race tape and cable tyres 
Although we have seen some cars do very well in the race where they're uh, a little bit, but you want to make sure that the car is straight, the wheel alignment's not knocked out. You want to have the good tyres with a fresh driver, low fuel, and most of all, good braking performance ready to go in that last two stints. Let's talk about strategy because last year, when it came down to the last round of pit stops, it became a battle between track position versus having the best equipment. So in the Bathurst 12 hour, just like any international GT event, during a pit stop, you cannot do refueling and tyre changes simultaneously. It's not like supercars where while the refueling is taking place, you've also got pit crew members who can execute a tyre change. In the 12-hour, the only thing that's allowed to happen while refueling is taking place is a driver change. No other work is allowed to be done on the car until the refueling has been completed. So that means that if you decide to change tyres, it is going to lengthen the amount of time that you're in pit lane. So by changing tyres, you are banking on the fact that you're going to be able to make up the time from the gain of having the fresh tyres on the track, and that's going to more than compensate for the time that you lose by being stationary in pit lane. And last year we saw that the Porsche team, Earl Bab and Motorsport, took the gamble of bolting a fresh set of tyres on for Matt Campbell for that final stint, whereas all of the other cars on the lane lap, in particular the uh, Motorsport, Aston Martin, and also that Grouper M Racing AMG Mercedes GT3, they elected to go for the shorter pit stop, take the track position, and had there not been a late safety car, it might have actually worked for them because I think before that last safety car came out, they were about half a minute ahead of the Porsche. But of course, the safety car came out, bunched up the field, the Aston Martin and the Mercedes then fell victim to the hard-charging Matt Campbell in the Porsche who had the fresh set of tyres at his disposal. But... Talking about strategy, Dave, and thinking about the fastest way to get to the end of the race, we've seen a few different schools of thought over the years. There's those teams that every time there's a safety car, they'll come in and top up with fuel, and that's their strategy. Other teams have got the philosophy of we're actually going to ignore safety cars and we're going to run every stint to what we know our fuel window is and have used that as their methodology for getting to the end of the race as quickly as they can. Uh, How do you think the winning strategy is going to play out this year? I still think that particularly for at least the first nine hours of the race, whenever there's a safety car, providing you haven't stopped, you know, five or ten laps beforehand... If you're into the last 50% of your stint length, so these cars, through their BOP restrictions, normally do somewhere between 32 to 35 laps of a stint. should be pointed out that the pro cars are all running on um, ELF LMS 102 octane fuel, so they got plenty of punch supplied by race fuels to get all the way through the race. If you're running flat out and then you cop a safety car, you're going to get bunched up. The field is not is fairly large, but it's not massive. And particularly with the uh, fairly vigorous use of blue flags for cars that are uh, more than a lap down, with cars coming through, if you're going to you know pick up 15, 20 seconds by putting the fuel into the car and getting yourself that 15 or 20 seconds worth of fuel ahead of your competitor. When they go to stop the next time, if there's a safety car later on down the race, when everyone has to stop, you have to stop for 15 or 20 seconds less. 
providing that on the safety car restart, you don't lose those 15 or 20 seconds coming back through the field to try to take your position relative to the people that are on the same lap as you. That's how you you make a gain. You, you play for the safety car. What we saw last year is you couldn't do that because there was a, was a four, four and a half hours we saw the longest green flag stint we'd seen in a liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour for it was a, over 100 yeah. laps the pace last year particularly in the second half of the race was relentless and that was why we broke the race distance record by such a huge margin yeah absolutely target 300 was well and truly out the door by the time we got to the last hour but i think particularly if i'm fairly conservative by nature you know i don't when I'm looking at strategy, you know, for those people who have a little bit of understanding of sports car racing in Australia, my father and I race in a series called the Q Industries Sports Car Super Enduro Series. It's organised by the New South Wales Production Sports Car Community. A lot of the same cars you see at the Bathurst 12 Hour, you'd see running in it. The, hour, the races are an hour long. There's a compulsory pit stop between 20 and 40 minutes. If there's a safety car at 18 or 19 minutes and there's a safety car out there when the 20 minutes click clicks over and the compulsory pit stop window opens you get your pit stop done because even if you've got a driver that's you know two or three seconds slower than the other driver in the car when you're putting them in the amount of time you lose doing that compulsory pit stop is more than made up by getting it done under safety car than doing it under green flag conditions and that's the other thing to remember is that when you do a pit stop under safety car because we don't operate to a code 60 or a the 80 kilometer an hour full course yellow as used by the asian le mans series when you do that safety car pit stop not only do you get to catch back up to the field the amount of time that you lose to the field is lower as well so whereas the people who are doing the green flag stops they're always going to be at the mercy of they could do the stop under green flag conditions. They lose the time to the car that then overtakes them. And then, of course, that car has to stop for less, less amount of time because it's stopped under safety car. One of the things that was announced in the middle of 2019 was that the organisers for the 12-hour were looking at bringing in a whole series of regulation changes aimed, I think, at making it a bit more uniform with some of the other races that are part of the Intercontinental GT Challenge. And some of those changes included having a minimum pit stop time, so the cars were going to have to be stationary in the pits for a prescribed amount of time during each pit stop. There was going to be maximum stint lengths that were going to be quite dramatically shorter uh, and they were also going to introduce a compulsory technical pit stop that each car was going to have to take at some stage during the race, which I think was four minutes. And in the end, the organisers had to backpedal on those regulation changes because there was a lot of backlash, not just from competing teams, but from a lot of spectators and fans as well. I have to say, I'm kind of glad that they did backpedal because I think by having too many regulations and too many draconian rules actually goes against the core philosophy of endurance racing, which there has to be a big degree of freedom on the teams to best strategize the quickest way to get to the end of the race. And if you impose too many rules and regulations, it takes out a lot of that strategic variation that makes endurance racing such a fascinating spectacle. 
well, we we were even talking about it just a few minutes ago. Would we have got the end of the race like we've had even the last couple of years? We've had cars on divergent strategies, different tire qualities, different brake qualities, different amounts of time for the driver in the car. Every time, particularly we've seen with events like the Spa 24, it's so restrictive that basically everyone's strategy becomes homogenous. You know, everyone has to do the same thing. Whereas even we've seen in events like the World Endurance Championship, the Le Mans 24 hour is part of the championship, but it runs to its own regulations. Um, And as we've seen um, in the Intercontinental GT Challenge, it's five massive events but before they were the Intercontinental GT Challenge, they were five events that were pretty much a standalone event. They didn't, they weren't run as part of a series. They didn't have, they weren't beholden to another set of regulations. They ran as an independent, standalone, pinnacle event. And if you take away that uniqueness, Mount Panorama is a unique circuit, but it's also the Bathurst 12er has its own unique identity in the world of endurance events. If it doesn't have that unique Australian flavour to it anymore, is it still as special? And I think what you saw, the reaction from both the spectators, particularly the competitive teams, remember, this is at its core customer racing. The, you give your customers what they want. And the customers responded fairly vocally. And of course, I consider myself a customer because I'm a fan. I'm a consumer of this product. Give us what we want. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It definitely isn't broken and it definitely doesn't need fixing. I certainly think that, you know, the intentions were absolutely noble. Of course, we've got this great intercontinental GT challenge. Um, The Stefan Rattel organisation has done wonders for GT racing, both at customer levels and at professional levels worldwide. By the same token, it's an Australian event and a unique event on its own. And I think... The good thing is is that Supercars and Kurt Suzuki and all the team behind this event recognise that and have continued to work in conjunction with all the other bodies, you know, Motorsport Australia, SRO, FIA and the competitor groups to deliver an event that delivers a little bit of the international flavour, a little bit of the Australian flavour. You mix it all together. It's like fusion food. It's like meat pie but with, you know... We've got some Asian teams. You know, it's a meat pie with a with an Asian slaw and then maybe a nice champagne or a German beer to wash it down with, which, of course, you'll find at some of the catering options in the paddock and in the Harris Park complex as well. One of the next debates that's inevitably going to come up with the Bathurst 12-hour is should we go down the path of making it a race exclusively for GT3 cars? And you would have to say that it is actually getting quite close to that point because when you look at the entry list for this year, there's a total of 33 GT3 cars that are divided up into subclasses depending on the driver rankings in each of those cars. Outside of that, though, the other classes are pretty slim pickings. There's only two cars in the GT4 class this year and four cars in the Invitational class. And none at all in Class B, which for this year changed from what was previously a class for Porsche GT3 Cup cars to a class for Lamborghini Super Trofeo cars. First things first, Dave, why do you think that the move to Class B for the Lambo Super Trofeo cars hasn't worked? How to phrase this? I think Class B worked for Porsches because Porsche has been 
a stalwart of Australian sports car racing for such a long period of time. Consider how many iterations of Porsche Carrera Cup, GT3 Cup Challenge, now the Michelin Sprint Cup, uh, Brisbane Michelin Sprint Challenge. Um, even that, we had the um, Porsche uh, Drivers Challenge as part of the Australian GT Championship. You know, Porsche has been synonymous with GT and sports car racing in Australia. And from all of those hundreds upon hundreds of essentially Carrera Cup cars, we've had five, six, seven, eight turn up at the pinnacle of Australian sports car racing. That's a, a very small fraction. Again, a very competitive and highly well-presented fraction of a massive Porsche community in Australia. Lamborghini, very noble intentions. The Super Trofeo class is amazing to watch. A car with even more horsepower than the GT3 car, perhaps not as aerodynamically advanced. Very much more suited to an amateur driver. Very strong in the US, it's very strong in Europe, it's very strong in Asia. Trofeo Motorsport acts as the Lamborghini Squadra Corsa agent in Australia. There's only two, three, possibly four cars in total in the country. And if you were going to put a car in a container to send it halfway around the world from Asia, from Europe or the US to compete in this endurance race, your fixed costs of running the car are basically the same whether you choose to run a Super Trofeo car, a cup car or a GT3 car because you need the same amount of personnel, you need the same amount of hotel rooms, same number of containers, wheels, the spare parts running between a Super Trofeo car and a GT3, not that different. Um, the cost running differences of a cup car between a cup car and a GT3R are fairly different, and the cost of buying the car is also fairly different. Um, my view, I would have liked to see Class B be open to, with, again, a category or a, an event-managed BOP, I would have liked to have seen it be open to a multitude of one-make category cars. Or, Carrera if you don't... Cup. Yeah. Carrera Cup, Super Trofeo, uh, Ferrari Challenge, cars that have a level of performance below GT3, but above GT4. I semi-agree with you. So, my feeling is that they shouldn't have got rid of a class for Porsche Cup cars. Or, sorry, they shouldn't have introduced the class for Lamborghini Super Trofeo cars at the expense of the class for Porsche GT3 Cup cars. Because... Every year, you always got, even if it was only three or four, but you always got at least a few GT3 cars turning up. And as you pointed out, there are a plethora of Porsche GT3 Cup cars of various iterations here in Australia. Even you and your dad owned and raced one for a couple of years. So even if it's too complicated to balance the performance and have it that you've got performance equalisation between cars from one-make categories like the Porsches and the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris, add a class. Why not have Class B for the Lambos and then Class C for the Porsches? I just, yeah, I, I don't understand why they ditched a class that always delivered entries consistently every year. And... The speed difference argument's not a valid one either because the GC4 cars are slower than the Porsche Cup cars. So if well, you're going to get rid of the Porsche Cup cars for speed difference reasons, you really have to get rid of the GC4 cars as well. Well, as we've seen, the GT3 cars run somewhere in the 2 minute 3, 2 minute 4 window when they're running flat out in race conditions. 
a Porsche GT3 Cup cars, normally running between 208, 210. The GT4 cars, with some of the young, spunky, professional drivers on board, were lapping in the high teens, 2 minutes 15, 16, 17, 18, somewhere there. So there was a good, you know, five, six-second lap time window, call it a second a kilometre, of the Mount Mount Panorama Circuit between GT3 and Class B. And there was another, you know, five, six, seven seconds between Class B and Class C. Particularly given that we've got, you know, the Mark II V8s, you know, the cars that look very similar to a Ford Mustang product, but due to licensing reasons uh, reasons aren't a Mustang, um, they've got a lap time base of two minutes five. They're not allowed to go faster than that. So the Anton Dave Pasquale did last year in qualifying. Yes. Those times were subsequently scrubbed. Which, is, again, is an impressive um, you know, feat for a car that's produced for far less money than a GT3 car. Um, but again, the race, the cornerstone of the race, if we go back to Bathurst 12-hours production car origins of the early 90s, was multi-class endurance racing. Even when we moved over to a GT3 race, because, of course, 2020 is the 10th iteration of the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour that has welcomed international GT participation. Prior to that, it was a multi-class production car race. And, of course, cars that are very, very close to that level of specification now complete, compete at their own six-hour endurance race on the Easter weekend. You know, the history of Bathurst is multi-class endurance racing. I would be disappointed, maybe not... Um, uh, maybe not distraught, but I would be disappointed if we lost the variety of classes at this, the pinnacle of Australian endurance racing. Um, I would not be surprised if that's the way the event went, because certainly I had the chance to visit the Spa 24-hour last year um, at, uh, at Belgium. You know, watch, watching GT racing into the night in, uh, in the Ardennes Forest is an amazing spectacle. But when it was all GT3 cars, you didn't have the underdogs to cheer for. Um, you know, I think there is a place, particularly as we've seen, GT4 hasn't really gotten a very strong foothold in the Australian market. There's something like 30-odd cars in the region, but most of them are used as track day cars, uh, for sprints, for driver training experiences. But there's, if you happen to lose a GT4 class from the Bathurst 12-hour, would that still, does that lose the halo on top of GT racing at GT4 level? Does that, would that diminish the chances of GT4 getting that, that foothold in the strat? Because I'm a huge fan of GT4. I think, you know, a much more closer to production, far less aerodynamically developed category is far more suited to the amateur or the gentleman driver brigade. Again, if you get in and you like, you know, the cars are a lot less expensive to buy. The running costs are a fair chunk smaller as well. Get into sports car racing, do some GT4. If you like and if your driving skills develop to the point where you can handle a GT3 car, by all means, make the jump to a GT3 car. But when you've got GT3 cars where the difference between the pro and the am is a delta of more than five seconds a lap, you've got to question whether that's the right car for that customer. GT4 really hasn't taken off in Australia, though, has it? And I think a lot of that is down to the fact that a lot of those recreational or you know, non-professional or semi-professional drivers 
simply have too many other categories to choose from here in Australia. You've got TA2, you've got what is now the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge, which is probably at a similar price point. TCR now coming into the marketplace as well. All categories that are at a similar price point to GT4 cars. And in fact, speaking of TCR, we know that they're going to have their own 500km endurance race at Bathurst a bit later on in the year. But we've seen overseas in some of the Creventic Series endurance races, like the Dubai 24-hour, that the TCR cars run alongside the GT3 cars and in the same class as the GT4 cars and actually have very similar performance levels to GT4 cars, which raises the question... Could we ever see TCR cars competing in the 12-hour? Um, that's possibly a difficult question or a um, rather sensitive topic at the moment <laughs> in the Australasian market, given the fact that the Bathurst 12-hour is administered by Supercars Media and the rights to promote TCR-linked uh, events in Australia is held by the Australian Racing Group. And those two bodies are now uh, operating... Uh, series that are separate from each other um, with different support packages um, and are leaning on their um, on their their skills and their their competitor groups to deliver the best products um, I would love to see TCR at the Bathurst 12 and I think if we take a leaf out of the you know some of the American endurance events and some of the European ones I think TCR would be a great platform for the Bathurst 12 particularly given that we've lost some of that you know, production car looking uh, stuff. Uh, the you know the um, the modified production cars that were the cornerstone of Bathurst twelve hour endurance racing prior to the introduction of GT three. Um, but given the pace of the race and obviously the invitational category being essentially limited to this year, at, at least by entries, limited to the to the mark cars, you'd have to consider. You know would the organisers want to make an additional headache for themselves with another set of cars to performance balance? Because, again, TCR cars run their own BOP from a different um, sporting organisation which which manages that BOP. And then, of course, would they have a BOP appropriate for the circuit? Which, again, we'll find out later in the year when TCR runs at, uh, at Bathurst at the, uh, the TCR 500. Moving on... Because that's probably enough discussion about that side of things for now. But um, let's talk more specifically about this year's race. Because there is a lot to talk about and a lot to analyse. Particularly on the driver side of things. Because we do have such a star-studded roster of drivers. Not just from Australia but once again from overseas as well. Including some names that have accomplished some pretty impressive achievements in other categories. Are there any particular international drivers, Dave, who you're looking particularly forward to seeing in Australia? Well, after he stepped aside last year to obviously operate himself as a team manager and didn't do too bad a job, got P1, uh, swan song for the Porsche 991 Series 1. I've been looking forward to... We hear great things about the Thor partnership from uh, running in GT Le Mans in the US and, of course, their time in international endurance racing... Earl Bamber and Lawrence Vanthor in the number one Earl Bamber Motorsport Porsche GT3R, joined by this Australian guy called Craig Lounders. Um, I've heard some good things about him. He um, he could probably learn a thing or two from that international enduro coupling. Um, other than that, um, 
you could you could throw a dart at this entry list and it's going to land on someone with quality. Um, you know, the Audi Sport team, Valvoline, again, Garth Tander, very experienced local, um, hooking up with Chris Mees and Mirko Bortolotti. Um, you know, the KCMG uh, drivers, um, you know, Oliveira, Liberati and Alexandra Imperatori, who will definitely be wanting to make up for that uh, safety car uh, protocol breach in the last 30 minutes of the race last year. Um you know, and even if we consider the the pro am ranks, um, how about the Ned Racing Team Porsche GT3 R with David Calvert Jones, very accomplished, almost as quick as a professional amateur driver, joined by uh, Roman Dumas and of course Jackson Evans, of course won the uh, Michelin Porsche GT3, um, sorry Michelin Porsche uh, Carrera Cup in Australia, and now is a Porsche Junior driver. You know what? level of experience is he going to come back to Australia with? Um, looking further down the field, Renga Vanderzander aboard the Honda NSX. I just love saying that name. Um, you know, Mario Feinbacher. You know, drivers that have got huge resumes in international sports car racing coming to Australia and showcasing just how good they are. Um, and of course, there's a Hong Kong driver here, uh, Josh Burden, um, He's actually an expat Aussie. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say. He's like, it sounds. He must must have a twin brother or something. Who's also an Australian who uh, who races in Asia. Um, you know, great to see the even just scrolling through the. And again, encourage you guys to jump on the Bathurst Twelve Hour website, bathurst12hour.com.au. Um, the entry list is being updated on a daily basis as more and more teams announce their drivers lineup, and they've actually done us a favour and put uh, little flags next to each driver's name to remind you where they're from. You know, Marco Mapelli from Switzerland, Dennis Lind from Norway, Dominic Bauman and Martin Conrad from Austria. You say Marco Mapelli's from Switzerland, I'm pretty sure you'll find that he's from Italy. No, he's racing. Well, he's racing under a. Under he a, is uh, definitely Italian. There yes. is no question about that. Well, apparently Scott Dixon is American. <laughs> well, he was born in. Born in Brisbane and then raised as a Kiwi, so it's only natural that he got away from that uh, Australia-New Zealand rivalry and declared himself American. Um, you know, apparently uh, the Kurt Kostecki and Jake Kostecki brothers are Australian, um, despite having names that might indicate they're from overseas. Um, looking further down the field, who else has got a Nick silly... Foster's English, apparently. Uh, yes, apparently Nick Foster is British. Um and uh, who else has got a silly flag next to their name? Um, I didn't know that the Schumachers had nationalised. Uh, obviously, Brad Schumacher, he must be the other other brother from Michael and Ralph. Apparently, he's an Australian as well. So uh, there's there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of variety throughout the field in terms of uh, people's licensing uh, criteria. It's a reflection of the FIA ASN who has issued that person their license as opposed to. Uh, uh, which nationality they actually have. I'll tell you the drivers that I'm looking forward to seeing out here. So one of them you already mentioned is Mirko Bortolotti, who has been a factory Lamborghini driver for a number of years. I first saw him in action a couple of years ago at the Dubai 24 hour, and he was so impressive in that race. I remember he qualified on pole position, got a puncture early in the race. The car dropped down to like 50th position, and then he and the rest of his team were able to work their way back onto the podium after being well and truly down and out of contention. So thoroughly looking forward to his first visit to the mountain. I think he's going to be exciting. Another one who I'm excited about who is also 
Italian is Luca Giotto, who comes straight into the Bathurst 12-hour after finishing in the top three in last year's FIA Formula 2 championship, where he was a race winner. And, of course, Formula 2 is one step below Formula 1. So we're talking about a driver who's gone up against the likes of Charles Leclerc and George Russell and Alex Albon and, in a lot of occasions, raced wheels well with and sometimes beaten drivers of that calibre. So I think Giotto is going to be very exciting around the mountain behind the wheel of the uh, motorsport Aston Martin where he'll be driving alongside Marvin Kirkhofer who was another very strong performer alongside Jake Dennis last year and the third driver in that car will be another talented young British driver in the form of Oliver Caldwell. And of course the 62 was the car that took the pole position award before it was excluded due to that BOP irregularity and of course ran at the front of the race right up until 15 odd minutes to go until Matty Campbell uh, sent one up the inside at uh, running to Forest Elbow and held him out and managed to hold on to it. So it's a fairly, uh, fairly. Sorry, it's a uh, it's a good endorsement for the for the Italian. Of course, we're starting to see that a lot. That drivers are realizing that if they don't make it to Formula One, it's not the end of the world. You know, if you can prove yourself that you're fast and consistent, but you might not get that break. You don't have that extra twenty, thirty, forty million dollars US or or Euros behind you that get you that gig in that entry-level Formula 1 team so that they can survive and then you can at least showcase yourself in front of the Formula 1 teams. It's not it's not the end of the world if you move across into sports car racing. You know, if you're a factory driver in sports car racing or you're a factory driver in Formula 1, at the end of the day, you're still a factory driver. You're still forming a very, very small percentage of the entire driver population. And it's a very exclusive set of, uh, of criteria to fulfil. When we look at the entry list, there are dead set this year 20 combinations, if not more, that could win the race outright. Given the depth of the field this year, a couple of questions. Number one, how many cars do we think are going to be on the lead lap at the end of the race, considering that the current record is seven um, over the last two years? I would be surprised if we did not have at least seven again. Um, remembering, of course, it's far more to do with who lucks out with pit stop strategy, who stays out of trouble. I think I would say we will have at least seven. I, I, I couldn't pick a number, but I would say that particularly given the quality of the field, providing that of those 20, you don't have five of them stack into each other at the first corner and you know go down several laps early on and then can't get it back. I would say that in the last hour of the race, we should have, when it all comes out in the wash of the last round of pit stops, we should have at least seven still in the lead lap. Which brings me to my next point, because in the past, and you go back to races like the 2014 race, where Harold Primer, Maximilian Book and Thomas Jaeger went two laps down at one stage, because they were having some issues with their Mercedes, managed to get both of those laps back, got back on the lead lap and were ultimately challenging for the win up against Craig Lowndes right at the end. But as the field has become more competitive, we've seen that if you go down a lap, it's becoming really hard to be able to get that lap back. And last year, you'll remember that one of the Bentleys went down a lap because they did a brake pad change, and they could not get that lap back. Once they lost it, even though they tried a few different strategic tricks to get themselves back around with safety cars, 
just the way that the race panned out, they could not get the lap back. So, well, if we have a, so if, if you we know, have a four and a half hour uh, green flag window like we had last year, anyone who drops a lap early will really struggle to get one back. So, if you go down a lap, do we say that that's it? You're gone. I certainly wouldn't write you off in the first two thirds of the race. So we get to sort of the eight hour mark. You'd want to be no more than a lap down. If you were on the lead lap and you went a lap down, not in terms of being out of sequence on strategy, but legitimately a lap down because of a long pit stop, um, someone slips off into a sand trap and then runs wide and has to come back out. And then as a result, they do a pit stop and then they end up a lap down and then there's a safety car. Providing that you're running, I'd say, within 30 seconds of the leader um, with sort of two hours to go, um, that's generally a good indication that you're in a competitive position. Um, if you're more than that away and that's not because you're out of signal on pit stops, you are really, again, if we run green, you're at a risk of not being there. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'll throw another question at you then. Obviously, we've got different classes. We've seen some really good outright results for cars that don't have an all-pro driver combination. You go back as little as two years ago when Kenny Habul, who was joined by Raffaele Marcello and Jamie Wincup, managed to finish second outright. But again, huge depth of all-pro combinations this year. Do you think it's possible for a pro-am combination to challenge for a podium? I think particularly if the AM is not deemed to be a weak or a very weak link in the chain, the one that sticks out for me, and you and I spoke about this in the lead up to the race, and I think we've spoken about it in several other iterations, the Porsche GD3R of David Calvert-Jones, Romain Dumas, and Jackson Evans, that car is an outright podium contender. I said it last year, I said it the year before that, Particularly if they play the strategy right, you get the gentleman driver, you get you manage the risk, you don't go a lap down, you play for a safety car, you get the gentleman laps out as out of the way as early as you can, bearing in mind that they've got to do at least a couple of hours in the car and they're limited to a stint length of no more than two and a half hours, so that you know you can have the pros in the car when it matters at the end of the race. You can't discount them. You know, that team has finished on the outright podium and won the Pro-Am class as a result. And by the same token, therefore, you also can't write off Kenny Habul, who this year will be joined by Dominic Bauman, Martin Conrad and David Reynolds. By the same logic, that car would have to be considered an outright Pro-Am contender as well. Another one that looks reasonably strong in the Pro-Am class is the Sam Shahin, Yaz Shahin, Nick Foster and Anton Di Pasquale car. However, because they've got two bronze-ranked drivers in the form of the Shahin brothers, that means that they will have to have both of those drivers do at least 100 minutes because that's the minimum amount of time that bronze drivers have to do. So they might not be quite as competitive, but still both De Pasquale and Foster we know are going to be very quick and the Shahins are among the better AM drivers around. So that car, maybe not podium, but depending on how things play out, definitely maybe top seven or eight. Well, as I said, if you can make sure that you're on the lead lap if there's a safety car inside the last two hours to go and you've already got your amateur or your bronze-ranked driver driving time done, ticked off and out of the way, 
and you've got your pros able to get to the end, it absolutely puts you in contention. You know, the first four to six hours of this race is just about what's the setup of the car doing, how's the track evolving, what changes can we make to the car, how we, how are we doing on tire wear, how are we doing on fuel burn, keep out of trouble, you know, if you if you go a lap down early, it's not the end of the world, you stay clear of the traffic, you know, you don't rub panels, you don't ding the wheel alignment so the thing tracks badly and wears a tire out prematurely, providing that you can survive that first you know, third to the half of the race, you know what's underneath the car, you've balanced the risk accordingly, then you can go, okay, this is where we're at, this is how much we've got left to go in the race, how do we manage that most effectively to get the best outcome? And with the greatest respect to the amateurs, it's about getting their laps done early when the risk is low. If there is anything they've got to recover from, they give themselves the maximum amount of time in the race to recover from it, because as of, as we saw with you talk about the Bentleys going down um, down a lap with a brake pad change, that was an all pro lineup, and they couldn't get their lap back because the opportunity didn't present itself because they didn't have long enough to get it back. We do have a slightly different structure with the driver rankings for the classes for the GT three cars. So in the pro am class, you have to have at least one bronze driver, but there's also now a silver cup class, which is for either three silver ranked or two silver ranked and two bronze ranked drivers. Any particular entries in the silver class that take your fancy, Dave? There's definitely a few that take my fancy, but I'll let you answer this one first. Well, if we have a look at who's in the class, we've got the wall racing Lamborghini, Adrian Dietz, uh, obviously another Italian driver, Antonio D'Alberto, uh, Julian Westwood and Cameron McConville. Again, you know, at least two or three of those drivers, very, very experienced going around here. Adrian Dietz, definitely the amateur in that lineup, but again, very enthusiastic and, of course, a huge amount of experience driving that Lamborghini Huracan GT3. Uh, we've got the other version of the, the car under that platform, the Audi R8 LMS, the Bostic Australia, Tony Bates, Jeff Emery, Max Twig, Dylan O'Keefe entry. Tony Bates and Jeff Emery have done a huge amount of laps in Audi R8s in the last 12 months. Tony driving in the Asia-Pacific uh, Audi R8 LMS Cup. Jeff Emery, of course, winning the Australian GT Championship and the Australian Endurance Championship aboard uh, that Audi R8. Max Twig, again, decades of experience racing cars at uh, at Mount Panorama. And this uh, Dylan O'Keefe, he must be an Irish driver. Um, I've heard a good few things about him. He's, uh, he's done all right for himself in uh, in TCR and supercars and maybe in Porsches as well. Um, and then we've got the Trofeo Motorsport Lamborghini, Liam Talbot. Again, pretty experienced amateur. Uh, Dean Canto, the journeyman of supercars. Uh, Marcel Zalua and Grant Denyer. So again, I'm pretty sure they'll have enough phone books in that seat and have blocks on his shoes so he can push the pedal all the way down. An assortment, again, a Black Falcon Mercedes. can never count out Black Falcon. Um, the 59 Racing McLaren of Dominic Story, Fraser Ross, and uh, Martin Codrick. That's got to be on the list as well. Uh, further down, the Hobson Motorsport Nissan GDR Nismo GT3 with uh, Kurt and Jake Kostecki and Brett Hobson. That GTR, I'm not sure it'll be outright competitive, but certainly in silver... It's a, it's a chance in that one. 
and I think that rounds out our silver competitors. So a smattering of brands, um, a smattering of, uh, of customers. Let's not forget the uh, Garage 59 Aston Martin of Andrew Watson, Olivier Hart, and Roman De Angelis. Um, so that's, uh, that's the silver car from Garage 59, the team uh, formerly running, running McLarens um, as uh, McLaren CRS Racing. There's some very well-credentialed drivers in there, aren't there? And I think that the battle for silver-class honours is going to be a really interesting sub-story or race within a race that we need to keep an eye on because you've got a combination of very experienced semi-pro GT racers, people like Jeff Emery and, and Max Twig and Tony Bates, who you've mentioned, but you've also got some talented younger drivers like Dylan O'Keefe. But then you've also got you know, former or retired supercar drivers like Cam McConville and Tony Dalberto in the class as well. Now, we know that Cam McConville's had lots of past success in lots of different types of cars. He's an extremely versatile driver. Tony Dalberto's still an enduro driver for DJR Team Penske. So, even in the silver class, even though it is on paper the lowest ranked of the three GT3 classes, there are still some seriously well-credentialed and uh, very accomplished drivers within that class. And as I've said, Lachlan, and, and I think we say this every year, but it's more true this year, you could put all these names and all these car numbers up on a dartboard and throw a dart at them, providing that you hit a dart on the dartboard, you're going to pick a car that will be competitive either in class or outright. And I think what's very impressive about a lot of the Pro-Am lines, even some of those silver lineups, they play the strategy right, they stay out of trouble. Some of the factory cars with all Pro lineups have issues. You know, they get the luck of the draw on the safety car. We have seen Pro-Am, we could possibly even see a silver car on the lead lap in that last two-hour window. And again, providing they've got the Pro in there, when it comes to BOP... The cars have all theoretically got the same chance, providing the teams set them up to give every driver the best chance at performance. You know, from uh, from 3.30 through to quarter to six in the afternoon on Sunday, they've got good tyres and the brakes are in good condition and nothing's hanging off the car, they could be in with a chance as well. So we you write off a silver combination because, again, some of these silver combinations, I look at them and go that would at least have to be a Pro-Am consideration. But that's why we use the FIA driver ranking and not a seated and unseated driver ranking system. The two other classes, the GC4 and the Invitational class, there's no restriction on driver ranking. Two cars in the GC4 class this year. Darren Jorgensen and Brett Strom, they've done the 12-hour a few times now. And they've enjoyed it so much that we've seen them make an appearance in the six-hour as well. And in fact, they finished on the outright podium at the six-hour a couple of years ago. They'll be joined by Danny Van Dongen in the BMW M4 GT4. The other GT4 car making its first competitive appearance in Australian motorsport, the Mark Griffith-owned Mercedes-AMG GT4. The other drivers in that car still to be announced. Yeah, as we said, I really want GT4 to work in this market, primarily so that when I manage to save up a bunch of money, I can call up the people at Multimatic Australia and take delivery of that Mustang GT4 that's sitting down in Notting Hill because that's a massively impressive car to see out there. GT4, it should be like a mini DTM or a mini Trans Am because you should have BMW M4 GT4 racing AMG 
Mercedes GT4, racing Audi R8 GT4. There's a mini DTM battle. Add in Aston Martin in the new AMR Vantage V8 GT4 car into that mix. We could see American muscle car wars. There's a, you know, Pratt & Miller designed the uh, Camaro GT4 car and Multimatic with the Mustang GT4. You know, there's so much opportunity in GT4 for there to be competitive amateur lineups. These are not slow cars. We're talking lap times within a couple of seconds of what we used to see supercars running around here if you go back 10 to 12 years ago. Like, it's, they are not slow cars and they are fairly forgiving. They're relatively cheap to operate. Um, I am disappointed that there's not more GT4s here running this year. But I think those two cars, there will be, it'll be a good battle to switch to, providing that the same thing we talk about in the main series, providing that they maintain the same lap. Their biggest focus will be risk management. Risk management. They will have every mirror. I wouldn't surprise me if some of them try to put a rear view camera on the car somewhere. It's just stay out of people's way, be predictable, leave space for the GT3 cars because more often than not, when you let one GT3 car through, there's two, three, four more in the train that aren't giving up for that overtaking spot as well. So I think the Jorgensen-Strom entry, obviously very experienced in driving that speed of car in international endurance races where they're used to dealing with a lot of traffic. Um, Mark Griffith has had some experience running in a GT4 spec car before, uh, perhaps not as much experience as those guys. But again, we've seen Mark Griffith run in a, an outright GT3 Mercedes and do pretty well as well. So... The final class, which is the invitational class this year, consists entirely of Mark Generation 2 cars, which are the Mustang body... Inspired. Inspired, yes. Inspired bodywork. <laughs> and they're all powered by the 5.2-litre version of the Ford Coyote engine. And some interesting news, just pretty much on the eve of us recording this podcast, is the fact that Ryan McLeod, who has built up the Mark Cars brand over... It's probably close to a decade now since Mark Cars first became a thing, but he has sold um, the major stake in that business off to Jeff Taunton, who will be one of the drivers in one of the Mark Cars this year. And again, some pretty talented drivers in the Mark Cars. You've got drivers like Daniel Gillison, um, who has formerly had experience in the Dunlop Super 2 Series, Steve Owen, who we know has had lots of experience and lots of achievements in supercars over the years. Young Aaron Cameron, who was a top three finisher in the TCR Australia Series last year. Jake Camilleri, another very experienced production car racer. Nick Perkett, former Bathurst 1000 winner and full-time supercar driver. Tyler Everingham, who won the Mike Cable Young Gun Award from the Super 2 Series last year. He's in a marked car as well. Young um, Bailey Hall, who raced in the Super Utes and in GT1 Australia last year. Warren Luff, who's had lots of podium finishes at the Bathurst 1000 in supercars. And good to see Bathurst's own Brad Schumacher behind Kelso the wheel zone. as well. Kelso's own. Uh, Brad Schumacher, of course. So shout out to Brad. Um, he's had a rotten run of luck trying to get um, high-speed cars to Bathurst. Um, I was at the Pyark Island Magic meeting in November where um, a small tag from a, a limping Audi R8 GT3 saw Brad write off his 991 Series Cup car. Um, that was almost to the day a year after his GT4 specification Lotus got absolutely obliterated after a mechanical failure at Turn 2 at the Challenge Bathurst event. Um, 
So uh, thumbs up and good luck, Brad, in the Mark II um, V8. Um, certainly those cars, again, engineered around providing an, a stable, easy to drive, easy to manage, easy to service, cost-effective endurance racing solution. You know, you talk to the guys in the team, they'll do one or two uh, 24-hour races without even having to, you know, um, pull the engine apart. Um, the cars are based built on a platform developed by Pace Innovations, uh, the same Queensland-based company run by Paul Sepernich, who developed the base chassis concept for Supercar's Car of the Future, now known as um, uh, New Generation, and, of course, uh, the New Zealand Super Tourers as well. Um, it's a great platform, um, you know, very well-maintained um, and robust all-aluminium Ford um, 600 odd horsepower powertrain at the front, um, Auburn's transaxle in the back, as we've seen used in supercars with to good effect, um, massive Pirelli tires, uh, massive wheels, and a huge selection of equipment on board from Racer Industries, um, Ryan McLeod's other business. We should make the point that Mark Cars was effectively, um, you know, it was Ryan McLeod's way of going racing for the Cravantic style events with a huge array of products that they already act as agents for in Australia, you know, using Project New and Brembo and um, all of the components that they would sell to races around Australia, they were able to incorporate in this car. So the cars are built out of really high-quality components, and that shows when they make it through the 12 hours, if they took the restrictors off and they let the cars run flat out, just how competitive do you, do you think a Mark II would be up against a GT3 car. Well, Anton De Pasquale gave us a bit of a glimpse of that last year, didn't he? He did indeed. Um, and consider that these cars cost a fraction, we're talking less than half of what an outright GT3 car costs. The running costs are so much less because they're built from the start to be a reliable, robust car that you can absolutely thrash hour after hour after hour. You know, the stories from some of the Mark I product, is such that you know they take a standard Ford engine, they pull it apart, they might put stronger pistons and rods in it. Other than that, put a dry sump boiling system on it, run it for 24 hours, go, oh, it looks okay, do an oil change, do another 24-hour race. You know, the It's a car that is true to amateur endurance racing spirit and managing the budgets. And those cars have been very popular in the Creventic series where you've got classes that are for cars that don't necessarily fit strictly to a set of technical rules and there's a bit more freedom. And they've fitted in really well into some of those international endurance races because, like you say, they're designed to be under-stressed. So the components are beefier and stronger than what you actually need and that actually reduces the running costs as well. Well, the main thing, to, well, the, the biggest thing that sticks out for me is I think consider that domestic car manufacturing stopped in Australia in October or September 2017 when, uh, when Holden's Elizabeth plant ceased operation. Um, Mark Cars may have produced the largest number of cars in Australia in the last two and a half years. They may, be Australia, they may have been Australia's largest car manufacturer or one of. That would be an interesting research project, actually, to find out what is Australia's largest car manufacturer at the moment. At the moment, yeah. Mm. 
So let's, before we get into our fearless predictions, just to round things out, let's just talk a bit about what you and I are actually doing at the Bathurst 12-hour this year, because in previous years at the 12-hour, Dave, you've been heavily involved in the medical intervention side of things, but this year you're wearing a different hat. Uh, Yes, I'll be wearing my Stillwell family racing hat. So uh, we run a 2007 Ford Mustang GT um, that we've developed into something closely or not so closely resembling a FR500C or an FR500S uh, Mustang racer. We run that in the uh, Group 2B production sports car category. But the way that we've built the car means it's also eligible as a 3D sports sedan. So the Wake Up Hostels combined sedans category has multiple classes, a little bit like the Bathurst 12-hour, open to TA2 and uh, Trans Am uh, chassis, uh, sorry, space frame uh, sports sedans, ex-Kumo V8 touring car, V8 supercar uh, type cars, and also all sorts of production-based cars. So we'll see improved production cars, maybe some Bathurst six-hour competitors trying to get a little bit of a a head start on the year, Um, and an array of cars that might not ordinarily be able to get a spot on the grid at Bathurst. They'll be all part of a capacity 55-car grid um, taking out uh, a practice and qualifying session on the Saturday mo- on the Friday morning, and then three races across Friday, Saturday morning, and Saturday afternoon. Uh, we'll be joined as part of the support package for the event uh, by the Aussie Racing Cars, which of course we're very excited about, and of course the Group S, the historic uh, sports cars. These aren't necessarily cars that raced in period but they are cars from a period of time that have been prepared with sympathetic modifications. This is kind of like what sports car racing used to be in you know in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and one of the final things we'll get to see on the support program, Lachlan, I'm very much looking forward to, and I know that there's a huge number of sports car fans out there looking forward to it, um, the mighty Group C prototype sports cars from the 1980s will be making an appearance on the track on Friday at uh, 1.30 and then also in the morning and then right before the Bathurst 12-hour top 10 shootout at quarter to five on Saturday afternoon. So there's a huge support category program, Lachlan. Myself, my father and our team are very proud to be a part of it. But what that means is is that I only have to worry about running the car twice on Friday and twice on Saturday, which means I get a huge amount of time to walk around and see all of the amazing attractions that make up the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour. And I'll be able to listen to your dulcet tones when you're working hard in the commentary box. Indeed, which I'm very much looking forward to doing. Once again, I'll be behind the microphone for the support category action at the Bathurst 12 hour this year, including on Fox Sports on Saturday afternoon, which I'm thoroughly looking forward to. My first time doing a live TV coverage, so pretty excited and pumped for that. What are the main off-track attractions, Dave, that you're looking forward to? I know that there's some pretty tasty machinery at the Mount Panorama Bathurst National Motor Racing Museum at the moment. Well, the National Motor Racing Museum is the place to go. If you've never been before, you've got to put it on your bucket list as a place to go when you visit. Again, during the residence access breaks that are on Friday and Saturday, um, there's plenty of chance to turn up. And again, if you're staying for the event and you don't have to get home too quickly on the Monday... Maybe drop in for an hour or two before you head home. Um, And of course, if you get there on Thursday and after the town to the track, you don't fancy walking around and annoying the teams in the paddock, which of course your general admission ticket allows you access to. Um, The National Motor Racing Museum not only has a permanent collection, they also have curated 
not so much temporary, but uh, seasonal ex- exhibits. For this year, they've brought together a host of previous Bathurst 12-hour winners, both the actual cars and in some cases some replicas because the cars have moved back overseas. They've also got cars that stand out from the history of Bathurst. So we've got the Maranello Motorsport Peter Edwards um, uh, Bentley Continental GD3 that was driven um, by Peter Edwards, John Bow, and David Brabham, one of the favourite cars from 2015 or 2016. And of course, they've also put together, for one of the first times since the early 2000s, they've got the Bathurst 24-hour winning in second place, uh, GRM-built HRT HSV 427 Monaros that raced in Nations Cup and the Bathurst 24-hour back from the very early 2000s. Amazing machinery. And again, it's a little bit of a showcase of, and again, you can find this through walking through the whole museum, where motorsport has come from, and you can see just how much the technology has changed. But of course, that endurance, that enduring spirit carries its way through 50 years, 50 or 60 years of motorsport history at Mount Panorama. Those 24-hour races were awesome, particularly the 2003 one where we had both of those Monaros nose to tail right at the finish. All right, well, let's put in our fearless predictions for this year's race. First of all, let's talk about how many safety car interventions we think that there's going to be this year. The record for the most safety cars in the Bathurst 12-hour was 20 back in 2015 when we had no less than 73 laps under safety car. For the sake of everybody, I seriously hope we don't have that number of safety cars this year because what happens when you've got that amount of safety car running as it actually disrupts the flow of the race and you don't get the opportunity to see how far people can go on a fuel load. The race doesn't really get into a proper rhythm. But by the same token, if we've got teams that are playing and praying for safety cars, it can also spice things up and bring some people back into contention that you might have written off. Um, I don't think we'll get another four and a half. Again, I would love to be proven wrong. I don't think we'll get another four and a half hour window of green flag running. I think... It's too competitive and I think people will be pushing hard and they will have to push hard to maintain the pace because whoever sets the front-running pace in in Class A, straight off the bat, they will be pushing hard to maintain that. And there'll be a lot of pressure both from the factories and the gentleman drivers to maintain competitiveness throughout that time. I wouldn't see us having less than 10. We had eight last year and I tend to agree I think we might have a couple more this year because as the level of competition increases, the propensity for mistakes increases. The other thing as well is that we have less cars in the slower classes this year. However, we do have more cars in the GT3 car uh, class and some of the slower cars within that GT3 class are still going to prove to be an obstacle that the outright cars are going to have to negotiate their way past. And because the cars are equivalent specification, it will actually be harder to overtake those lapsed cars, if that makes sense. The big thing for me is that, and again, for those of you who haven't visited Mount Panorama before and are making the pilgrimage, I would encourage you, when there's no cars on circuit, of course, at the end of the day, go for a walk around the circuit and actually see how little space there is, A, to have a mistake... B, to make a recovery, or C, if you have an issue that's not, you know, life-ending, but it means you've got to limp the car to a place of safety, there's very few places where you can park a car at Mount Panorama and not have it in a dangerous position. Um, 
you know, even a minor tag of the wall here, and again, the walls are within 30 centimetres of the designated track limits in a lot of places. If you tag the wall slightly and you bend the suspension, if you can't limp the car back to the garage, there's very little places you can't, unlike a full road circuit where you could pull off onto an access road and find your way behind a wall, there's very few places that you can pull up and not interrupt the flow of the race. And particularly given the speed that a GT3 car does and how long the race is, race control will uh, look at the situation and unless they can be absolutely satisfied that no one else is going to run into that car position where it is, they'll have to go yellow flag, they'll have to get the recovery out. And again, because of the tight nature of the Mount Panorama circuit, you can't just get a crane and a tow truck to any point of the circuit within 10 or 15 seconds. It is a fairly labour-intensive exercise, both to deploy on circuit to get a car and also to move the tow truck vehicles around again so you can respond to the next incident because there'll be more than one safety car and there'll be more than one car in the fence. So if we're both in agreement, then that there's going to be maybe a couple more safety car appearances than there were last year, are we also in agreement that we're not going to complete as many laps as we did last year? I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I think we had that four and a half hour green flag running window, but then we had instances and you know the old saying, safety cars breed safety cars. I think because we've got drivers that will be that will understand that they need to get a flow back going again, I think maybe we won't have as long a period of green flag running, but in the other instances we'll have longer periods of green flag running between safety cars. So the safety cars should be more evenly distributed throughout the race. Um, I would love to see a Bathurst 12 hour that did more than 322 laps because that would mean that we'd done more than two Bathurst 1000s in 12 hours. 10 different manufacturers have had wins in the Bathurst 12 hour. Toyota, Mazda, Mitsubishi, BMW, Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari, Nissan, McLaren and most recently of course Porsche have all tasted success at the 12 hour. Can we have another manufacturer on top of the podium or will it be one of those manufacturers that's already achieved success, achieving more success? You would have to say that if another manufacturer was to be added onto that list, probably the most likely ones would be either Bentley or Lamborghini, possibly Honda, although I have my doubts about whether that car's an outright contender. What do you think? The Honda's a difficult one because there's only the single car that's entered. Um, as far as I'm aware, and I'm, again, happy to be proven wrong, that car's been very competitive in the US and it's been reasonably competitive in Japanese Super GT in the GT300 class. The car hasn't run in the country. It also ha- didn't wasn't in country ready to run at the Challenge Bathurst or the Sprint Bathurst event. So they don't have a lot of data. And again, the circuit is really unique. Um, if my money was going to be on which of the manufacturers that has not won a race would win the race, it would have to be on the team from Bentley. They, your Bentley team M Sport has withdrawn from running in the Blancpain uh, GT World Challenge Europe, both the Sprint and the Endurance Series, to focus on the Intercontinental GT Challenge. When Bentley goes motor racing, they go motor racing in events where they are running in the top class. It's why they don't run in the IMSA series in the US, because the GT3 category is the lowest of the four classes. Um, it's why they often they 
they focus on events where they are the pinnacle. This is an event that when Bentley first turned up, they made it clear with their commercial packaging around the event and the level of presentation that they brought to the event. I was working in race control and I had the team manager coming up and talking directly to race control. I'd never seen that before. They took it really, really seriously. And they've made it clear that they will fight as hard as possible to put the Bentley boys in a position to win the race. And they've been in a position to win the race and then been blown away. There was a time where they were destined to get a podium and then in the last corner they went from running second to running fourth and missed the podium. So it's a brand that really wants to add a Bathurst 12-hour to their storied motorsport history. And the M Sport organisation has a huge um, history of winning when it comes to rallying. They've won in the Blanc Pain series. They've had success with some customers around the world. This is one that they want to win, and they will stop at nothing within the rules to put their cars in a position to win. So that brings us down to the last question then. Who's going to win? Who are our fearless predictions to be standing on the top step of the podium come 5.45 p.m. on Sunday? Well, I think the winners out of the event, Lachlan, will be all of the fans who will be able to watch the race live on uh, on Channel 7 Mate, I believe. Um, all the details for the broadcast are online. For those of you listening in from around the world, uh, the event will be live streaming on the event website. For those of you in Australia, I'd encourage you to check the Bathurst 12-hour website for the broadcast protocol. As Lachlan mentioned, on Saturday... We will have uh, some live coverage on both the Fox Sports Network and through the KO uh, Sports app as well. Um, But if you're asking me to pick a winner from what is the most competitive GT3 field, Lachlan, I, again, put them on a dartboard, throw a dart at it. Who's going to win? It could be anyone. I really can't pick it this year. Put it out there. Come on. We don't have fence sitting uh, in the Checkered Flag chat podcast. Oh, they say that if you sit on the fence too long, all you end up with is splinters. Um, well, there you go. They're at the top of the list. There you go. Car one for number one again. Earl Bamber, Lawrence Vanthor, Craig Lowndes. He's made it clear he wants to go racing internationally, and Craig will do everything he can uh, to put on a good show with Porsche to maybe put in a good audition for a uh, Le Mans seat in 2020 and 2021. There you go. Not bad. I'm going to tip Audi this year. I think that they have come out with a really serious attack. Three factory cars filled with pro drivers for the Audi Sport Team Valvoline operation that runs as part of the Melbourne's Performance Centre. Sorry, Melbourne Performance Centre attack on the event. Three cars. Hard actually to work out which of those cars is going to finish highest up the order because all three of them have got serious quality drivers having a look at the driver combinations it really it's a flip of the coin it could be any one of the three but i'm going to go for the triple two entry of kelvin vanderlinder matea drudy and marcus winklehock um if i was going to pick an audi i'd definitely be picking one of the audi sport team valvoline cars my money would be on garth tander chris mees and mirko bortolotti there you go i'll have an each way bet you know, one Porsche, one Audi, ignoring the fact that they're owned by the same shareholders. So, there you go. There we go. So, there are our fearless predictions, and there is everything that you need to know in the lead-up to the 2020 edition of the Liquid Moly Bathurst 12-hour. Thank you for downloading this podcast. 
Looking forward to seeing you all trackside on the mountain for what promises to be three days of epic and enthralling action. My thanks to Dave Stilwell for joining yours truly, Lockie Mansell. See you trackside. The mountain is calling.